Today we'll be reading from the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood and put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to, Jer to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down to that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave, him, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who shown him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I am, uh, I'm Caleb. I serve as one of the pastors here. We're in the middle of a series on really what it means to be a disciple. Um, we're calling it, we're calling it follow? Yeah, that's what we're calling it. <laughs> it's called follow. Um, the first week, Ben talked about really what it means, uh, the difference between being a fan and a follower of Jesus. Last week, I talked about the process of being changed by him. And so this next uh, part is really looking at what it means to love what Jesus loves. And as I was thinking like through this very complicated word, um, love, I came across a video of some kids trying to define what it is. So find some humor in that this morning. 2017, there was a film that was produced where kids were asked to describe what love looks and feels like to a professional illustrator. So here are some of their responses. One girl said, uh, when I think of love, I think of hugs. Uh, one guy said, love to me is burgers and fries. Same. I agree with that. Uh, one kid said, I love this one girl because she has curly hair. Um, when asked, uh, do you love Ethan, one girl responded, yes. And when Ethan was asked, do you love Helena, he said, no. <laughs> Why? Well, sometimes she's mean to me. One kid said it looked like this emoji um, right here. <laughs> um, when asked what does love sound like, one kid just with his, uh, with his mouth said someone like passing gas. Um, one kid just screamed in terror. 
Um, this is a little concerning. One kid said it's like a lollipop with a scorpion inside. I really know what to do with that one. Uh, this one's my favorite one. Um, one kid said it was like Sprite because Sprite makes me kind of ticklish on the inside. It's a complicated word. Um, it's a word that, especially in our culture, it can mean a lot of things. I think even when we get older, we get maybe a little bit more jaded uh, to what love actually is. But, you know, in our culture, I can love a burger from Waterman's and I can love my wife. Love you more, babe. Promise. Um, but I'm convinced, and here's the problem, I think, with this word in particular, is we have no idea, apart from Scripture, apart from Christ, really what it is. So if we don't know what it is, how do we know we're supposed to do it? To love the things that, that Jesus loves, to love this kind of other-oriented love. But I really believe if we can get this, a working just theology of, of love, capturing maybe the imagination of God's love for us that, that leads to love for others, man, this is what all of Scripture is about. We have to start here. We have to start here. So here's the outline that I'm going to give you. Three points. We love because Christ first loved us. That's the first one. The second one is love God with your everything. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means. And the last part um, is love your neighbor as yourself. I don't normally say this um, before a teaching. I know that a lot of people love taking notes. A lot of people don't because um, of your rock star memory, but I'm just going to really, I'm going to exhort you today. If we can't get this, then the rest of scripture is not going to make sense. So that's my like just plead to you is take some notes. Um, you can use your phone and I'm not going to call you out on that. You're allowed to do that. So please just take, take some, there's a lot here, but I hope just in a with a lot of these things, a lot of these notes, that you do have a fresh understanding from the word, what it is. So, I think what's so complicated about this word in particular um, is Hebrew is actually very complicated too. So, in scripture, the word love is ahava. Okay? So, it can mean, and that's what is awesome and confusing about Hebrew, is that one word can mean a lot of different things. Actually, a lot of Hebrew shares the same consonants, so you can have the same consonants, the different vowels, and it's a whole different thing. But I do think there's a lot of beauty in that, like especially with this word ahava, there are so many things that give this kind of robust, robust understanding of what love is. One, it could be just a general affection or care towards someone. It could be physical desire, it could be the way that a parent loves a kid, a way um, like a brotherly love that you have maybe for a best friend, it could be a loyal love. Um, and all of these things can demonstrate actually God's love towards us. That's why this word is so important, because this is what is described when it says that God loves us, God ahava us. But there's a curiousness about how the Bible talks about God's love towards people. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8, it said, The Lord 
did not set his affection on you, his ahaba, on you, and chose you because you were bigger than everyone else. Talking about Israel here. You were actually the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. And he kept the oath he swore to his ancestors that he would bring you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So God doesn't actually, he's saying he doesn't love this nation, this people, because they earned it. They had nothing to do with it. They were the smallest of all the peoples of the earth. It just said he loved them because he loved them. He loves them. It's just, it's who he is. Jeremiah 31.3, it says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. It's a love that's existed forever. It just radiates from who he is. It's not determined by anything. It, it, it's just God is love. It's, it is who he is. And his love is not a duty. It, it really is a genuine feeling. There's a genuine feeling. There's an affection to it. Hosea, uh, one of the prophets, he would compare it to a love a husband has for a wife or a parent has for a kid. But listen, it's not just a feeling because that's really important. Like, I think we think that God doesn't actually have feeling towards us. There is genuine feeling, but it's also action-oriented. What do I mean by that? 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. And John, what he's saying there, he's going to give this whole discourse before this. He's saying, now you love because he first loved us. Start in verse 7 of that same chapter. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son. There's action. He sent his son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. That, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Again, he sent his son, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That sounds exactly like the great commandment. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives us. His love is made complete in us. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates an action. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16, another action. For God so loved the world that he gave. You see what, what I'm throwing down here? It's not just this feeling. It's not this affection. It's tied so much into what he does as well. It's affection plus action. So, just an illustration. So, if you were to, let's say you're walking... Um, by some railroad tracks. It's a little morbid, but it will make, it will make sense. Um, you see a baby on the tracks. Are you going to respond by just thinking, maybe I should save that baby? Maybe I should do something. You know, I don't actually know. I don't know. I have time for it. Train's coming. I don't think I can do it. Um, you're having this just intellectual discourse with yourself. Is that really what's going to happen? No. I hope not. It's 
disconcerting if it is because there's just this immediate reaction. Maybe the motivation, this is where the illustration breaks down a little bit. Maybe the motivation is out of guilt. If you don't do something, that's going to be on you. Maybe it is out of love for human life, but there's not going to be this just long thought about it. You're going to react. You're going to save that baby because the train's coming. Man, in the same way, like God saw us completely helpless. And it wasn't this long discourse of just thinking like, ah, should I? No, it was just out of this pure love that he sent, that he demonstrated, that he gave himself. Put himself in harm's way. What do I mean by that? Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says the joy set before Christ that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Joy of what? What was the joy that he, that captivated him, that he endured this torturous death machine? It was a joy of you being restored with him. He knew about this joy. He had had it forever. He had this joy with the Father and the Spirit. It, it existed. It was an everlasting type love. And he knew how good that was. He created us for it. We were made for it to to enjoy this everlasting joy of being fully known and fully loved by the one who created us. Of course he knew this. He made you. And so it was that joy of saying, there's no way that that baby can save itself from this oncoming train. There's no way that they can save themselves from the wrath of my father. It's justified. They wanted to be their own masters. They gave up on us. They completely rebelled against us. It's completely justified, but instead of them doing it, I'm going to take it for them. So he endured the cross. I think we get bogged down in, in, in kind of the minutia of the details of, of the God. I mean, those are so important. Like, correct doctrine is really important. The how we were saved. You, your sin was an affront to God. That is important to know. It's important that we know that Christ came and lived a life that none of us could live. It was a design that his father had for us. We couldn't do it. He came to do it. He was a sacrifice for us. He rose again, defeating sin and death. Like Those are important, but I think we completely forget sometimes why on earth he did it. The joy of you being with God. He's the end. It's not heaven. It's not the pearly gates. It's not fishing day and day and day. No, it's being with him in a relationship with him. The joy of knowing that he endured the cross, despising the shame that we could be with him forever. And so what's our natural response to this joy? If it's really manifested itself in us, if it's really grabbed a hold of us, if the gospel has really taken root in us, what is a natural response Well, he gives it to him. He says, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So that's the second point. 
Love God with your everything. Let's just give you a little bit of background. Um, Jesus wasn't, this wasn't a new thing. This would have hit pretty hard for, for the Jews because he's pulling from something that they had been reciting every night and every day for thousands of years. It's called the Shema. Okay, and the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, let me read it to you. It's so similar. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. I'm not going to sing the song, but you get it, right? It's the same exact thing. And so that would have just hit them right in the heart. So what I want to do with this, just to kind of unlock, unpack this verse, I want to kind of do a few word studies. What does it mean to love God with your heart? What does it mean to love him with your soul, your might, all of these things? But first I want to start with this word Shema. So Shema means hear. Yep, there it is. It's a common word, and, and it's not just, in, in Hebrew, it's not just like sound waves hitting your ear. I mean, that is a piece of it, right? Um, but it's more of this like pay attention. So when they say this word Shema, they're saying pay attention, Israel. Focus, Israel. Respond to what you hear, Israel. Psalm 27, 7. Shema my voice when I call, O Lord. Hear my voice, O Lord. Be merciful to me. So we're asking God to act. We're asking him to do something. Exodus 19.5. If you shema me fully, you'll keep my covenant. Then out of all the nations, you'll be my treasured possession. So from God's point of view, hearing is also responding. It's keeping. It's doing. And here's what's really interesting. In Hebrew, there's actually no word for obey. It's one word. Can we guess what it is? Shema. So in Jewish literature, in scripture, when we use the word Shema, it's listen plus obey. And that's a good thing, right? Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear? These are all action, action steps. Reverence the Lord your God. Walk in obedience to him. To love him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. To observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today. All these actions are centered around love. And to the Jews, if they were not doing these things, then they actually didn't love God. They just said they did. And when we hear that, we're like, wait a minute. It's my legalism radar going up. But I'm just saying from the word, if we're actually, he's saying focus on these things. Because if you really are hearing them, there's no choice but to respond. Later in scripture, I mean, we see that prophets say things like they have ears, but they aren't listening. So again, listening means they're not obeying. So when you hear this prayer, the Shema, the love your Lord, how are you going to respond in obedience? So the second word, heart. So heart means, or in, in Hebrew it means lev, or love. 
And they knew that was, the heart was, they knew it was an actual, like, organ of the body. Um, they didn't really know about the brain yet, um, but they did know about, about the heart. So there was this very physical um, thing about, like, knowing that this is, this is a real thing. You can have, there's a, there's a reference of, ha- of a guy having a heart attack in Scripture. So they knew that was like a, it was a physical thing, but they also believed, and this is why they didn't really have a, a reference point for the brain, because they believed thinking happened in the heart. So thinking, to know with your heart, that's where you understand, that's where you make connections. Some of the Proverbs in Scripture would talk about wisdom dwells in the heart. So that's where kind of we get loving God with, with your mind. Some authors write, they add mind to that. Um, the reason really I would, I would think for that is because loving God with your mind, it's not just this intellectual understanding about him. It's not having the facts. Those are important, right? We just talked about that. But it's dedicating your mind to knowing him. It's thinking clearly about him. It's not just being satisfied with this intellectual awareness about him it's, or learning enough doctrine. If a, listen, if a person does not move from an intellectual awareness of God to actual response and this emotional response to what God has done, then you're not loving him with your mind. I'll say that again. If you do not move from just these concepts of God to actually seeing the gospel and seeing what it's done for you and this emotional reaction to it, you are not loving God with your mind. The heart, it's from the heart, it's where all of these things come together. This is why they believed that it was connected to emotion. As well. That's where we get a broken heart, actually, comes from ancient Hebrew. It's where you feel fear, it's where you feel distress, it's where you can become depressed, it's where you feel joy as well. The phrase good of heart or heart of joy, those are all Hebrew phases. So I have a picture, this might be helpful. So it's in the heart, it's where the physical, so the, the, the actual organ itself, thought came from the heart. Emotion came from the heart, but also choices as well. This is where we get desires of your heart. The heart is where your, your affections are centered. It's the center of all parts of human existence. That's why in Proverbs they would say, guard your heart because from it flows your whole life. It's the center of really who you are. And here's the great problem that the prophets talk about in Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is fundamentally broken. The heart is of a human. It's deceitful above all. It's irreversibly sick. Who can understand it? So the only hope for humanity was this total renewal of the heart. And Moses knew this. That's why he said in Deuteronomy 36, he would say, The Lord your God, give her kind of a weird word here, but he'll circumcise your hearts. He'll cut and replace, and he'll cut and replace your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him, here we go, with all your hearts, with all your soul, and live. So literally, you are being surgically repaired. Being changed by Jesus, God is literally cutting the evil and stubbornness out of you. That's what it means to love him. That's why Psalm 51.10 would say, create in me a pure heart. 
Ezekiel 36, 26, remove this heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. And I love, I love, I didn't put this up here, but I love this analogy. In Jeremiah, he talks about how um, replace these hearts of stone, write on them your law. The law of God was written on stone. And he's saying, now do that on these hearts of flesh. May they delight in you, in your law. Give them a new heart. Because it's the only way, like our, our hearts are just these, these idle factories. They just, all our desires, all our affections are produced from them. And he's saying, we cannot fully love God until this is fixed. Until this is cut and the evil and the stubbornness of, of us and who we are. Give me a pure heart, O oh God. From the heart flows the springs of life. And without one's wills, desires, passions, affections, perceptions, and thoughts rightly aligned, this life of love is impossible. God's people are called to devote their whole body, their mind, their feelings, desires, as well as their future and their failures to God. And that's why Moses would say in Deuteronomy 6, right after the Shema, he would literally beg them, say, tattoo this on yourself. Talk about it with your kids before you go to bed. Put it on your doorposts. Talk about it when you're on the road. Don't forget these things because when you do, you've missed the whole point. Because that's what the Pharisee did. He's saying, what am I supposed to do to, to get eternal life as if he can do something? And Jesus said, you've missed the point. Everything hinges on this. And don't stop talking about it. So loving God with your heart, it's your passions, it's your hungers, it's your perceptions, it's your thoughts all dedicated to God. What about your soul? about loving God with your soul? So the word here in Hebrew is nephesh. Nephesh. <laughs> nephesh. Um, that was fun. I got all lost after that. <laughs> so this is kind of a complicated word. Um, and without opening a giant theological debate, that's not my goal here. Um, my goal is to give how the... How the um, how the Bible thinks of soul. The Greeks thought of it as this kind of immaterial substance that, you know, once you die, it kind of just floats away and, and, and that then becomes like who you are. Um, but this is actually foreign to Scripture. This idea is, is a little bit foreign to Scripture. So nephish, here's where it's a little bit complicated. Nephish could mean throat. So in Numbers, they talk about how the Jews were um, they, were, they were complaining against Moses, saying, you took us out of Egypt. They had melons there. They had, like, cucumbers and all these things, like, our nephesh has dried up. Our throats have, have dried up. But it doesn't just mean throat. It could actually mean your whole self. So there's, like, four references here that, that I gave you. Genesis 46, 15, there's 33 nephesh in Jacob's family. Uh, Numbers 31, 19, a murderer is a nephesh slayer. Deuteronomy 24-7, a kidnapper is a nephesh thief. Genesis 1 talks about how animals and humans are a living nephesh, and dead things are actually still considered nephesh. So in the Bible, people don't have a nephesh, they are a nephesh. And the, NT, or the, the New Testament authors, they would, 
they would talk about like when our bodies die, the, these things, when they die, there is this state, there's this intermediate state between death and, and, the, and the new body that's to come, but they would not use the word nephesh to describe that. So the point is to show that the concept of a soul in the Bible, it was the entirety of the person. Psalm 119, 175, we have, let me live that I may praise you. Literally in Hebrew, it says, let my nephesh live that it may praise you. Their entire being, their life, their body offers praises to God. So again, love is not just this intellectual experience, it's this full body thing. So because I love Alyssa, I went to the Jonas Brothers concert with her, um, (laughs) About 99% of that room was having a full body experience, for sure. Um, There was emotions of uh, pure joy, um, singing their hearts out. Um, I was a little intimidated at at one time because when Lizzo came out and she sang this song that was like trashing dudes, I was like, ooh, I don't like that one. Felt very alone. There was, uh, it was feelings of joy and, and anger. Um, but you could feel it because it wasn't just words on a screen, right? It was this internalization that it just this complete overflow, this full body, hands in the air, jumping, a little bit of anger, a lot of anger at times. But I, that I could see just like, man, when these things, like when, when, just taking this back, when the gospel has rooted itself in your heart, it is just no, like it's just this full body experience. Psalm 42 would talk about how um, as a deer pants for streams of water, catch this, so my nephesh pants for you, my nephesh, my soul, my nephesh thirsts for God, for the living God. So yeah, your, your throat can become thirsty, but it also serves as this metaphor for all of you. That's why it's so complicated, because it's like, it's just every bit of you thirsts for God. To love the Lord, your God, with your soul is to offer your entire being with all of its capabilities, with all of its limitations, in an effort to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So starting from the heart, your affections, your desires, that then move into this full kind of body experience. And then I love how it ends. Loving God with your strength. Some say mind and strength. Well, in Hebrew, strength it's not like a, it's not like when we think of strength, like how I can bench a ton. I can't. I really can't. Um, it's this kind of, there is a cool word for that. I'm not going to say it because it's some phlegm and my throat's a little dry, so I'm not going to do that. But um, mayoth, it literally means very or much. So when, when the uh, Hebrew writers would use this word, it was to intensify the word before it, like an adverb. Welcome to English class, all right? So very or much. So for example, Genesis 1.31, uh, when he talks about this creation of the world, it's mayod good. It's very good. And the story of Noah talks about the waters that were treacherous. They were mayod powerful. 
Cain and Abel, it said Cain was mayoed angry at his brother. It intensifies this meaning of the word that's after it. So why is it important then that this mega word that like intensifies the words around it, why is it important that it's at the end? Because it's literally just like jacking up the words before it. Loving God with all of your heart. Mayod, all of your muchness. They just they don't really even know how to explain it other than like what if what if it looked like if that intensity was shown and manifests itself in your life when you love God with all of your desires and you love God with all of your being, what would that actually look like if Mayod was present? What if it what if your your muchness? And so the Greeks came to this word, too, in the Shema, and they translate it as, uh, ooh, d- yeah, whatever it's up there. <laughs> and it can mean power or strength. And what's interesting is in Aramaic, this word became wealth. And so which one is it? That's not the right question because they're both pointing to the same thing. For strength of a person is not simply who they are, but what they have at their disposal. So loving God with your muchness means everything that I have, everything I have, myself, my body, my mind, my resources, all of them are to honor you. Every opportunity, moment, ability, capacity, chance you get to honor and love God. That includes your spouse. That includes your children. That includes your house, your dorm room, your pets, your wardrobe, your tools, your cell phones, your movies, music, computers, time. You get the point. Everything that is who we are and that we have, if we're loving God with our muchness, it's all for him. We talk about this a lot here. Your time, your talents, your treasures, your temple. That's what loving God with your muchness means, is that means everything, God, do with it as you please. That's what loving him with with our everything. And what's so fascinating is that Jesus then says, and the second is like it. He said, loving your neighbor as yourself is like this first. That's my third point. So Jesus, when we talked about the, um, the story in Luke, where he, he's given this illustration um, of two guys who just completely dissed this one dude on the road. Um, and then another guy who, they're not supposed to like each other. The Samaritans and the Jews, they weren't supposed to like each other. But this guy, the Samaritan, he gave his everything for him. And he's using this illustration to remind Israel, this was your job. God chose you, remember, not because you were greater than anybody. It's because he loved you and he wanted to use you to show this other radicalness, this other love to others. 
Don't take advantage of the widow or the orphan, Exodus 22:22. Don't deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits, Exodus 23:6. During the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused when the poor among your people may get food from it. The wild animals may eat what they leave. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive groves. So don't take more than what you need. Give to others. Don't, um, what am I on? Deuteronomy. Yeah. Do not go over your vineyard a second time, same thing, and pick up grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. This is really important that he says this here. I am the Lord your God. He's reminding them that this is the commandment that I just gave you. If you love me with your, all of your being, you will love others. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. There will always be, Deuteronomy 15, there will always be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, be open-handed towards your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. And this isn't just an Old Testament thing. Right? The heart of this translates into the New Testament, showing the cohesiveness that this was not fulfilled back then, that this is who we are, and this should manifest itself in you. Matthew 19, 21, Jesus said, If you want to be perfect, if you want eternal life, then go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. So give all of yourself, whatever that is, and then come follow me. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed. Luke 14, 13, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Romans 12, 20, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. 1 Timothy 5, 3, give proper recognition to the widows who are really in need. James 1.27, religion is this. Religion that God our Father accepts is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted. 1 John 3, if anyone has material possessions, sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can he love God? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. The reason why this command just cuts to the absolute heart of who we are is because it exposes the absolute root of our sin. Piper says this, the root of our sinfulness is the desire for our own happiness apart from God and apart from the happiness of others in God. Pride is the pursuit of happiness anywhere but in the glory of God and the good of others. We can't love our neighbors until we really know what it means to actually love ourselves. To love ourselves correctly, to see ourselves correctly. So when Jesus is saying, love your neighbor as yourself, it's not necessarily even a command, but it's this assumption he knows that you love yourself. You think of yourself, and everything that you do, you preserve yourself. You, you have these passions, these desires. You want fulfillment in life. That's a good thing. When you're cold, you get a coat. When you're hungry, you eat. Those aren't bad things in and of itself, but the reason why we can't do it well is because at the heart of us, we want to pursue self-love apart from God. 
and not seeking the happiness of others. And Jesus challenges and he shapes this. He says, as your life, listen, he says, as your life is dominated by being self-preserving and self-seeking, may that same intensity be given in self-giving. May the way that you think about yourself be the way you think of others. So these passions that you have, awesome. Think about that for others. Help them experience that. You want food, that's good. Feed your brother too. You get cold, we all do. Think about someone else who is cold as well. You have this gospel, that's great. Think about those that don't. The same self-preserving love that you have for yourself. Jesus is not just saying, don't give them these same things. But the way that you pursue those things, as if your life literally depended on it, because it does, think of that for others. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And this doesn't come natural (laughs) at all. That's why the first commandment is so important for us to get because loving yourself correctly is seeing and savoring all the desires and all the satisfaction is found in Christ alone. So it's not a loss when you give all of yourself for others because all of your joy is found in him. That frees you up to joyfully and sacrificially serve others and to help them find true joy in Jesus, no matter the cost to you. So loving yourself correctly is seeing that everything that I have, it belongs to him anyway. All of my desires, all of my resources, it's his. So if my fulfillment is in Christ, Here's the rest of me. Take what you need. Loving your neighbor as yourself. I love how Piper's helpful again here. In other words, take all of your self-love, all of your longing for joy and hope and love and security, fulfillment, significance. Take all of that and focus it on God until he satisfies your heart and your soul in your mind, and what you'll find is that it's not a canceling out of self-love. It's a fulfillment. It's a transformation of it. Self-love is the desire for life and satisfaction rather than frustration and death. And God says, come to me. I will give you fullness of joy. I will satisfy your heart. I will satisfy your soul. I will satisfy your mind with my glory. Everything hangs on these two things. If we don't get this, not only will we be able to understand Scripture, but our effectiveness, like this is pointless. But if we really are marked by loving God with our everything, then it doesn't matter what happens to us because the great joy of knowing him, that others may know him as well.
and find their joy in him. The final illustration, this is my favorite, I think, um, just a missionary. His name is Eric Liddell. And uh, there's a movie about it. Um, basically, his, his story is this, that he was a, he was a pro Olympic athlete, um, like in the 1920s. And he ended up actually winning uh, the 1924 Olympics for the 400 meter. I'm not going to get into that, but he wasn't supposed to win. It's a God thing. It's really cool. Um, but what's crazy about this is literally his sports career was just beginning. I mean, it was the sky's the limit for this guy. But he completely gave it up to go to China. <laughs> he left his sports career. He left the glory of that, of being a gold medalist for the Olympics. And he went to China. Why? Because people need to hear Jesus in China. So he went to China, and he, and he met his wife, and they had kids there. This was like right on the beginning of World War II, when things were like real bad. And so he was there ministering. They started a school. They were um, doing evangelism, church planting, all, all of these things for, for the glory of God. But what happened was it got so violent over there that he had to send his wife and his kids away. To Canada and he stayed and there was a hope that they would see each other again but what happened was he was ended up rounded up into an internment camp never to see his wife and kids again but instead of being completely defeated he continued to minister to people he would do Bible studies with kids when people were stealing he would find ways to, to give them things that they needed. And here's what was so fascinating about this. The sneakers that he wore to win the 24 Olympics, there was a kid that needed some shoes, and he ended up giving them to him. Didn't matter. It's just stuff to him. He ended up dying from an inoperable uh, brain tumor, but the last thing that he said to one of his friends there is, trust Christ. And I love how some of the people that aren't believers have actually wrote about him. It says the world still remembers Eric Liddell today, not because he was the fastest runner in the world, but because this young man put his whole career as a runner in the balance, deemed it as small as dust, compared to, the remaining, to, compared to remaining true to his principles. He valued the kingdom of God over anything that he would build. Why? Because he said, no, this is mine anyway. God, I love you with my everything. Even if it means me getting beat up and taken away to an internment camp and to die, never to see my kids again. That type of love, that other-oriented, radical love, that's what changes the world. That's the goal of the church.